welcome to What's Killing My Kale. This is a podcast from University of Minnesota Extension all about integrated pest management tactics for vegetable and fruit producers. I'm Annie Claude, and I'm an Extension educator here for fruit and vegetable production. And I'm Natalie Hoytel, an Extension educator with the Pesticide Safety and Environmental Education team. This is going to be our very last episode of Season 1, What's Killing My Kale. Thank you all so much for listening this season. And we will be back around March with a new season. We are very excited to be here today with Linda Chalker-Scott. Linda is an extension horticulturalist and an associate horticulture professor at Washington State University. She has done some really great work with natural remedies and navigating sources of information to get good research-based information about natural pest control methods for organic systems. So Linda, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you got started? Sure. Well, when I first started off um, in horticulture, you know, I had a typical, you know, interest in bench science. And so all of my work was lab-based. And I took a job at University of Washington where I was going to be teaching a more practical course. It was in landscape plant management. So my background is in plant physiology, so that was okay, but I didn't really have much of a feeling for, you know, how to apply this on a practical level. And as I got into the literature, um, I discovered that a lot of the methods that were being promoted for managing uh, landscape and garden plants didn't seem to be based on any kind of science because it wasn't the information I could find um you know in, in the scientific literature. So that kind of got me to wondering, well, where did this stuff come from? And so that kind of got me started on doing this myth, the myth busting. So that's how it all started because I came at this from a very, a very theoretical scientific background and was looking for support there for all these uh, products and practices that turn out not to be science-based. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one series in particular that caught our eye was um, the fact sheet that you wrote titled Myth, Miracle, or Marketing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that fact sheet, um, where you got the idea for it, and, and how did you choose which topics to address in that? Well, that was um, something that was in a rather short-lived publication that was called Master Gardener Magazine, and, and it was right when I was starting to you know do a lot of this uh, publication on myths, and so it was really intended to be for Master Gardeners. Um, you know, as a, as a source of information when they were working with their clientele. And that's kind of what I was breaking, breaking things down to, you know, is it, is this really a great product? Is it a miracle? Um, is it a practice that's actually a myth or is, is the whole thing slick marketing? So that's where the, that's where the, um, the title came from for the series. And what issues do you talk about in that fact sheet? Well, there's several fact sheets. So, um, you know, this came out, it was a magazine that was published uh, four times a year. And so uh, one of them had to do with compost tea. Another one had to do with hydrogels. Um, it was just the things that tended to be things that um, people would ask me questions about, and I would uh, try to find them fact-based. One of the fact sheets that stood out to us was the one you did on Epsom salt. So we've met quite mm-hmm. a few farmers who are using Epsom salts for a variety of things. One of those things is weed management. Um, can you just talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done with Epsom salts, kind of how they've come to be considered like an herbicide or also a, kind of a miracle fertility treatment? 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting that on one hand, you have people that are putting Epsom salts on their plants for a fertilizer and other people are using it as an herbicide. So that kind of tells you right there that um, it's probably neither one. Um, and in fact, all that Epsom salts are is magnesium sulfate. So it's two elements that are actually needed by plants. Um, but the problem is when you use too much of it, you're going to cause imbalances. So having to, especially with magnesium, you can get way too much magnesium in your soil. And then you start having a problem with uptake of calcium and other things. So in terms of the mechanism for how it acts as an herbicide, I have no idea because there's absolutely no research or science behind that. Um, in terms of acting like a fertilizer, it really doesn't do anything unless you happen to have a deficiency in magnesium in the soil. Mm -hmm. And that's not very common. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think I've come across this actually with several um, different uh, fertility issues, not just um, with Epsom salts, but other products as well. I see people applying these when they don't have a deficiency or when they don't know if there is actually a deficiency in their soil, but they have read somewhere that um, Epsom salts or other products will increase the fertility or increase the productivity of their plants. Um, can you comment on that? Well, you know, there is some research, and this is in a very, you know, specific area of agriculture and has to mostly do with, with, with tree fruit production. And when you have an intensively managed orchard where you're, you know, pretty much maximizing production, you oftentimes have to, you know, you know add additional nutrients. And so what um, orchardists used to do would be they do foliar sprays of Epsom salts to get the magnesium directly into the leaf um, to address some of the, the fruit issues. Um, they've pretty much stopped doing that, however, because you have such a problem. All these leaves, of course, eventually fall to the ground and uh, decompose, and then all that magnesium is now in the soil. And so they've actually ended up having toxic levels of magnesium just as a result of foliar spraying. So that's really the kind of science behind it is using it to address very specific deficiencies in high intensity. But in terms of, you know, people with their landscapes and gardens, you know, they're probably not trying to, you know, maximize crop production. They're probably just trying to have um, a nice functional garden. And so adding magnesium sulfate without knowing that you need magnesium in the soil um, usually causes more problems than anything else. And we have a lot of listeners who are um, market farmers as well, small fruit and vegetable farmers. Would you say the same thing applies for them? I would, because a lot of these practices were things that we did, you know, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And as we've discovered, there's better ways of providing nutrition than, than, than spraying things on. You know, we know the value of organic material. We know the value of slow-release types of material, um, you know, slow-release nutrients. And what we've discovered most of all is that many times the deficiencies that you see in a leaf have nothing to do with uh, what's in the soil. What, what's happened is that the plants are unable to take um, those nutrients out because of nutrient toxicities. So basically, you just recommend that everyone gets a soil test regularly and then makes their decisions based on that? Well, well, yeah. And it's not even like you have to have them done constantly, but uh, the analogy I sometimes use is, you know, let's say that, you know, you're not feeling great, you decide, you know, that you need to go to the doctor or something. So that's what you do is you go to the doctor and you have lab tests done. 
you know, find a baseline, figure out what's going on. You don't just run to the supplement store and buy a bottle of everything and start taking all these supplements. And it's the very same thing with soils. You know, you need to know where you are, what your baseline is. Uh, find out if you do have deficiencies, then you can add whatever you need, but not just start, you know, ladling on all the all all the fertilizers because it's really difficult to draw down nutrients. It's not hard to add new ones when you need them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are there potential harms of using Epsom salts in areas where they're not needed? Oh, sure. Just because you you get these increases, you know, to toxic levels of of magnesium, and you know, elements don't go away. They're they're there until something uses them. And so, when you have excessively high levels of magnesium, it can really mess up your cation exchange. Um, it it could prevent uptake of other types of cations because of competition at the root level. Um, it just it doesn't do anything. And I actually run some tests now and plan to do a publication, just seeing what Epsom salts do um, in terms of of uh, you know, impact on the plant uh, compared to water or compared to traditional fertilizer. And there's no difference between Epsom salts and water, none. And that's with a you know a plant that has uh, sufficient nutrients. So, you know, in potting media or a normal soil. So another topic that you have written a lot about, which I think is a little bit more complicated, um, is compost tea, just because compost tea can vary quite a bit from formulation to formulation. It's another example of a natural remedy that I think a lot of people are using that's primarily addressing plant fertility but there are also plenty of claims that it has insecticidal or fungicidal um, effects. So would you mind giving some background on like, why are people using compost tea rather than just compost? Um, And what is some of the information that you found in doing research or research reviews? Well, there was, um, you know, there was some work that was done in the 80s looking at uh, compost leachates. And compost leachates, at, at that point, were just looking at non-aerated material. So in other words, you have a compost pile, water runs through it, stuff leaches out, and that's a compost leachate. And some initial reports, and this was really uh, quite variable, but some initial reports suggested that compost leachate made from a certain type of compost might have some... Um, bactericidal or fungicidal activity when sprayed on the leaves. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. As I said, it was pretty variable, but it it had some interesting implications. So what happened in the meantime is that there was um, a way of modifying this and making it aerated. So in other words, taking that same material, but now running oxygen through it 24 hours a day and then making the same claims about it without any kind of published evidence. So that's where it started with with this claim that it would um, suppress foliar disease. Well, you know, the literature still 20 years later doesn't have any evidence that this works, you know, in in a consistent manner. And if you don't have something that's consistent, as you said, you know, these recipes will vary every time you make them, then you really can't make a recommendation because you don't know if it's going to work or not. So that's kind of how it started. the one thing people should be aware of is that it's not a registered pesticide and it's illegal to apply it to anything but your own landscape or garden. So in other words, um, someone who uh, is going out and doing work on someone else's landscape can't apply that as a pesticide. It's illegal to do. So that's that's a regulatory issue that people really need to be aware of. 
The second part has to do, well, as I mentioned, it doesn't have uh, efficacy in terms of being a consistent product. And there's actually been a lot of research on it, and it's been kind of frustrating for the researchers because they can get it to work the first trial, then the second trial it won't work, or the third trial it might work or might not, because every time you make it, it's different. So that's why I'm just saying it's not a consistent product. So then the interest kind of moved to more of a soil fertility thing. And so the mindset there is, you know, rather than uh, putting all this material down all this compost, we'll just extract the good stuff out of it and spray it on, you know, and, and jumpstart soil biology. That's kind of the phraseology that's used. Well, so first of all, you have to kind of critically think about this, that if you're taking microbes and you're removing them from their food source, which is the organic material, so that all you have left is a bunch of microbes, and you're spraying them onto a bare, lifeless soil, they have nothing to eat. So you've just taken a bunch of microbes, stripped them away from their food source, and then thrown them someplace where there's no organic material. It doesn't work. But let's say that you do this in an area that does have, um, you know, organic matter. Does it make a difference? And so there's been some really good research done on this, primarily by um, um, a researcher who's now at University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. But he looked really carefully at uh, compost tea compared to water. And he looked at both dilute compost tea, which is what you normally apply, and then the concentrated form in terms of how this impacted soil uh, nutrients and uh, pH and cation exchange and all that stuff. And it turns out that dilute compost tea is no different than water, which isn't too big a surprise. With the concentrated material, he found a few differences between that and water. But as he said in his analysis, you know, the compost itself has orders of magnitude, higher level of nutrients, beneficial microbes, beneficial nematodes, and of course, organic matter. So kind of the message is from people who are doing the research on this and finding, you know, very little effect is why not just use the compost because it's got both the microbes and the food source. And there's so much research on using compost and the benefits that it has for plant growth that it really makes no sense to strip the microbes out and leave the compost, the, the organic matter behind. Do you see any situations where it would be better to use compost than just compost? Or would you advocate for compost in pretty much every situation? Well, the, I haven't seen any research at all that consistently shows that compost tea has a positive effect. So that's the problem. And, you know, with, with the type of recommendations I do, they have to be science-based. And so if I can't find good, consistent science, um, I'm not going to recommend it. And have you found any negative implications of using compost tea or just basically the idea that it's not consistent? Well, it's interesting to ask because I think probably the most robust uh, body of research on compost tea is looking at um, possible possible health problems. So it turns out that when you're making um, you know compost tea, you know you add a lot of uh, uh, carbohydrates, especially things like molasses or kelp meal or something like that, uh, for the microbes to, to to eat. And what they've found is, especially when you use things like molasses, that you get higher levels of pathogens like E. coli and Staphylococcus if you use um, molasses. And if you use compost that's based on yard waste, 
as opposed to manure, it's just higher levels of pathogens, human pathogens. So there's been, I think, three or maybe four different lab groups that have found the same thing. So there's the consistency. And they really are concerned that, you know, people are making this stuff. They're not having it tested for pathogens. And then if they, they use it and spray it on, on edible plant materials and they don't wash it, then they're going to be ingesting pathogens. So I'm going to back up for a minute. This is all really valuable information for our growers. In, in extension, we, as you were saying as well, strive to share a research-based education. So whatever we, we recommend needs to be based on uh, research and evidence. But unfortunately, there's not always a lot of research-based information available online for organic uh, pest management strategies. There's certainly not as much as there should be. And uh, I find sometimes that in Google searches, even if there is great information out there, it's not always the first thing that comes up. So what advice do you have for growers who want to use uh, these alternative practices and um, really want to make sure that they're going to be as effective as they want them to be? Well, first of all, you know, it's it, it's kind of learning how to assess, you know, credibility of information online. And it's not easy to do, especially if you don't have, you know, the background for doing this all the time. So, you know, the, the, the first caution I have is, you know, when you're looking at information, uh, generally speaking, .edu sites or .gov sites are going to be better sources of information. Um, but that being said, that doesn't guarantee it. So the second thing you have to look at is who is actually, you know, providing the information, who's the author, you know, who's, who's publishing it, um, or do they have credibility in their field, in other words, are they experts, or are they completely out of their fields? It gets to be, you know, kind of a detective <laughs> approach. And, you know, if you're not seeing it in mainstream publications, or mainstream, uh, and what I mean by mainstream is, is university um, and other academic uh, places. If it's not there and it's not consistent, then I'd be cautious because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's promoted in the absence of any kind of, um, you know, published data. And unless you can see, unless you can actually see those publications and know that, you know, that there's some good science behind them, you know, it's really risky uh, using methods that haven't been uh, vetted and, uh, you know, refined in such a way that, that you're applying things safely. Do you have any go-to sites that you tend to direct people to? Yeah. Well, in terms of, of materials, you know, if, if, if growers want to do organic things, and most of them will know this already, but, you know, going to the Omri site will at least give you a list of the products that are listed for use for things. And that's important because it will list what can be used for a pesticide. And so it'll, it'll tell you you can't use compost tea because it's not registered for that pro for that use. And so that's kind of a useful side in terms of what's what's labeled for what kind of use and is it approved for organic. So that's kind of a good, you know, uh, kind of comprehensive regulatory slash um, uh, material listing site. Past that, um, you know, usually extension uh, publications, if they've been published within the last five years or so, and if they're peer-reviewed, which is pretty easy to find out, they're usually pretty good sources of information. Um, you have to be really careful of the older ones because there was a, a propensity years ago in extension to just kind of everybody kind of just repeated the same stuff in their own publications. <laughs> there was never a link to any original research, and that's a real problem. Uh, so that can be a good spot. Um, of course, I've got my own uh, website, which 
Um, people are free to use that has uh, free downloadable PDFs, and that's uh, theinformedgardener.com. And so it sounds like a commercial site, but it's just an address that I that I purchased so I could use it for my university site. And um, there are some good books out there that I think that uh, growers would really be interested in. Um, two of them are by um, a former faculty member at University of Minnesota. I'm sure you know Jeff Gilman, and he's written about organic products and um, and uh, other types of, of myths. So he and I started kind of doing this myth busting at the same time. We didn't know each other at all, but now we're very good friends. And then, of course, I've got um, a series of uh, books out um, on gardening myths uh, under the informed gardener title and I have a, a book out on on how plants work and so if you can find faculty like myself and like Jeff uh, like Dr. Lee Reich the, who who write for a popular audience and can translate the science uh, for gardeners and growers um, those are the best places to look and then past that if, if people want to have a more active participation and discussion, you know, um, social media can be a good or bad thing. You know, we've tried to make it a good thing by having a, a, a science-based discussion group called the Garden Professor's Blog. And uh, we've got about 22,000 members, and all we do is, you know, discuss you know, science-based approaches to gardens and landscapes. I want to talk to you about um, kind of a, an example here in Minnesota. So I work with a lot of grape growers around the state. Um, I've noticed a lot of growers, or at least a few, um, have a temptation to apply foliar sprays as a preventative measure, or they have um, issues with yield and productivity, issues with fruit set, but they don't really know what's causing the problem. And uh, so they're applying foliar sprays just in case this could help solve the problem. So could you talk about what you would recommend to those growers? Sure. Well, the first thing I would have them do for sure before they apply anything else as a foliar spray is, of course, have a soil test. Mm -hmm. Because if if they're if they're applying something that's already in excessive levels in the soil, it's only going to make things worse. So that will at least tell them, you know, whether or not the element of interest is in the soil. If it is, of course, you don't need to apply it again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, as I mentioned uh, earlier about the Epsom salts, uh, you know, people used to do that decades ago as a way of uh, getting certain nutrients to the leaves directly because of, of problems with fruit set. And, you know, if you have, if you have a, a, an obvious deficiency or you are producing, you know, at levels that are above what the soil naturally will support, you know, there's obviously a use for that um, with a caution being, of course, it's not a sustainable thing and you're just, you know, kind of pushing the envelope for what the, the soil will naturally support. But, but you know, there's always going to be situations where you might have to do something like that, but not unless you know that you're missing that element in your soil. Mm -hmm. So so let's say, for example, let's say, and I'm going to just use iron as an example. So let's say that um, a grower has uh, what looks like an iron deficiency in the leaves. And so they spray iron EDCA on it to see if the, 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 um, it disappears and, and turns green again. And it does. And so now they know, okay, well, there's an iron deficiency in my leaves. Now they could just leave it like that and then every year spray it with iron EDTA. But then a more important thing I think would be to go and do the soil test and say, is iron actually deficient? And what 
more people have found consistently when they do this is that they have plenty of iron in the soil and the pH is okay, but what they have is excessive levels of phosphate. Mm -hmm. And this is really common in landscapes, uh, gardens and landscapes, as well as orchards or other places where you have permanent crops as opposed to annual crops. The phosphate just doesn't get used up that quickly, like it does with annuals. So if you build up the phosphate levels to such a level that they're toxic, what they do is they interfere uh, at the root level with iron uptake. So it's not that the soil is deficient, it's just the plant can't take it up because there's too much phosphate. So spraying on more iron, I mean, it, it, it masks the problem, but it doesn't solve or address the problem. Okay. Yeah, I want to reiterate that point that you made that if the soil test um, doesn't reveal a deficiency, then, uh, you know, just applying a product is not going to solve the problem. If, if you're applying something that you're not um, that you're not deficient in or if the, the plant is already taking up a lot of it. And wouldn't you say that doing foliar tests is a really important part of this equation as well? Absolutely. So, yeah, let's, so I'll go back to the example I was talking about with the iron. So if you have the iron deficiency and you think it's an iron deficiency and you spray the stuff on and yeah, sure enough, it's, you know, it turns color, but then you've done a soil test and you've got enough iron, then absolutely, if you test the foliage and it shows you have an iron deficiency, even though there's plenty of iron, and then you look at your soil test and it has, you know, sufficient iron but too much phosphate, you know exactly what's going on. And in fact, that's how this whole relationship was discovered by testing those, uh, those two sites and then looking more closely at uh, root uptake to find out uh, what was happening. Okay. What about calcium? Um, is there an antagonistic relationship with calcium and another nutrient in the soil where if you've got uh, too much of something, it can interfere with calcium uptake? Well, you know, the, the, this is the problem is that this whole thing with nutrient toxicity is relatively new. And there's a lot of um, supposition that exactly you're exactly right, that when you have um, too much of another nutrient that's going to interfere with um, a secondary nutrients uptake. But there just hasn't been a, very much research yet figuring out the mechanism like there has been with the iron phosphate connection. So I don't know. Okay. All right. Good to know. All right. Are there any just final thoughts you want to share, Linda? Well, um, I yeah. I, I mean, I really would like to encourage um, your your listeners to to join our Facebook group. It's a it's a really fun group. We manage it fairly closely so that you know it, it stays professional, stays objective, it stays friendly. Um, questions get answered really quickly. Uh, while we don't address, you know, farming types of questions, we do have people that, you know, have their own, you know, residential garden or they have a small acreage. And, you know, so their questions are as welcome as, as people with landscapes and, and small home gardens. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Great to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and enjoyed this season one of What's Killing My Kale. Again, we'll be starting up with season two around March. If you have any ideas or topics you would like us to cover in the upcoming season, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Have a great winter holiday and we'll catch up with you in March.